0: Welcome back to Connect This. It's, oh, I got to mute myself. This is great. Can't have a start that actually works properly because I'm trying to monitor <laughs> everything. <laughs> Uh, So today, we're going to be talking about digital inclusion, and we want to talk about broadband internet policy generally in a way that is fun and informative. We have some guests to really dig into digital inclusion issues today, and we're going to start by introducing Deb Sosha from the Enterprise Center, someone I worked closely with over the years. Welcome to the show, Deb.
1: Thank you. Good to be here.
0: How is Chattanooga treating you?
1: Treating me wonderfully. I love it here.
0: Excellent. We're going to talk about some of the interesting things that are happening down there. Uh, And then we're going to, I'm going to introduce next Angela Seifer from the National Digital Inclusion Alliance. Welcome to the show, Angela.
2: Thanks, Chris. Glad to be here.
0: I think you've been one of the busiest people in 2020. I keep singing you praises behind your back. uh, So I really appreciate all the work that you're doing. Um, You really stepped it up during COVID. So thank you for finding some time for us. We also have Travis Carter once again back from I don't know, some internet service provider called Use Use Internets, is that right? You,
3: you, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Use us. Yes. But it is a beautiful day here in Minneapolis today, Chris. What do you Travis think? Travis from
0: U.S. Internet, and I'm running out of funny ways yes. to try to introduce you.
3: Yeah. Let's, let's get, yeah. I, no comment. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I'm Christopher Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, and I hope I'm not the pers- first person to start shouting today. I want to start. We're going to start a little bit differently to try to jump right into things. And I'm going to ask uh, first, uh, Deb, uh, to describe in three words how you think the Biden administration is going to handle the digital divide.
1: So I've never been one to follow rules. So I'm going to do three three word sentences devote more money, create new opportunities, and get it done. I cheated. No,
0: that's good. It gives us a sense of where you're coming from. Angela, what are yours?
1: I'm going with good
2: God, please.
0: (laughs) I like that. That's a little closer to how I'm feeling. (laughs) Travis, where are you at? Uh,
3: Will they do something?
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's sort of, that sums up kind of where I am too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to let it pass. Yeah,
3: Yeah.
2: If yeah, Deb can break the rules, Travis can yeah, break.
0: Yeah, thank the rules. you, thank you. Yes.
3: Uh, and
2: yes. To, to be
0: clear, I mean, usually I try to give people a few days' notice. I threw that I threw this at you a couple of hours ago. So, um, you know, mine basically came down to not holding breath because I was just going to drop a word. <laughs> um, I'm very concerned. I mean, I, I have high hopes. I, I know that Democrats have have uh, have um, suggested that they are very ambitious about this um, in, in legislation that they have passed this year when they were reasonably certain the Senate would not do anything with it. And so I am very curious to see where they go with it next time. Um, You know, Angela, I feel like I want to start with you because I know you, uh, first of all, (laughs) brilliant timing. The the Digital Equity Act was before we knew about COVID-19. Um, was something that you were working on and really was at the right time to have that prep work. Tell us just a little bit about it and maybe what you're hearing in terms of enthusiasm for those sorts of things.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So Digital Equity Act is uh, the easiest way to think of it is the different buckets of money that it has. So a bucket for the digital equity tr- plans that needs that the states need to have so to help the states do that which can we all just take a moment and be like, well, if the states had had plans before COVID hit, this would have all looked a lot different. (laughs) Yes. But okay, they didn't. So the need for the plans is really clear now as they're all struggling with it. And many of them are doing things right now, which is really astounding. Um, So that piece and then implementation money for the plans, of course, and then a competitive uh, grant process for additional funds for the digital inclusion work. And so by that, we mean organizations, community-based organizations, libraries, local governments, whoever's doing the work, that they would have funds to help folks connect, help folks connect to low cost internet, help folks get access to devices in their home, have help them have the digital literacy training and tech support that they need. And so we were working on that pri- prior and now all of a sudden people are like, hey, that's a good idea. Idea. So the awareness is through the roof. And I, I think I'm in the same boat as you are, Chris, that I feel like we have a real chance. So much positive work occurred, even in the last six months. Okay, it didn't go anywhere. But still, people <laughs> made serious effort in the last six months, right? Like, policymakers understand it in ways they do not, did not understand it previously.
0: Well, Chicago and, did something. I mean, like, so there's something the that happened. government
2: did something federal government didn't do anything. Local governments are, some of them are just really astoundingly creative using their CARES Act money. Like, look what happens when people have some money to create solutions. Mm-hmm. They do.
0: So one of the things that I feel like I've observed, and, and let me just throw this out for Travis and Deb to jump into as well, whoever's fastest. Um, you know, I feel like I, I, <laughs> I watched people for a few years trying to come up with reasons that weren't related to price as to why people weren't using the internet. And a lot of us were just digging up the research and the fact that every conversation we had with people who were working with those populations suggested that price had a lot to do with it. And we kept making that point over and over again. And then I feel like a lot of people sort of took that too far and came to the conclusion and i would say that i even may have been a little bit on i may have been mistaken myself let me just say in thinking the changing the price would do more than it will and i think a lot of people are expecting lowering the price will significantly bring people online and i'm afraid that's probably not going to happen
1: it fixes part of the issue right the affordability to me is the number one reason that we're having problems getting folks online But if you are, say, in your 70s and you've never used technology before, you need to understand why that's valuable to you and how it can change your quality of life. So there really does need to be some training as well. Um, But I, I hesitate to ever use those other reasons because people tend to say it's not money, but it's money. You know what I mean? Like, I'm really careful about that because for years people have really harped on it's because they don't know how to use the internet and and there is some of that, but really the cost is huge.
2: Can we also note the difference in that having an affordable market rate is one thing and then having a subsidized rate is something different. So when we talk about affordability, we need to be talking about both of those things and we can't mix them together. I think in the past, it's been kind of mixed together and they're two separate issues.
0: Yes, which gets into one of my issues, which is reforming the market structure. Uh, But also there's no market structure that's going to deliver at $10 a month, I don't think. At least it's unlikely. So Travis, let me ask you, do you want to just share some of your experiences in this, bring you right into it?
3: Sure, sure. So as you and I have talked, over the years, you know, we, this started out for us about 14 years ago. At that time it was called the digital divide and it has evolved into different words uh, today. And Chris and I have often talked about price, price, price being the, the hurdle to get people online. And so when the, um, when the pandemic hit here and the local government here in Minneapolis started to have a real need, you know, what we did is we said, all right, let's start really looking at this seriously of what we can do to help. And so to eliminate price as one of the topics, we said we would give up to 35,000 internet accounts away for free uh, for the entire school year for students to get online. And what happened is, is the next issue percolated right to the top. And that issue was the lack of access to meaningful technology. We, there was not enough laptops or computers in the pipeline, or even a thought process to get them. So as much as we always focused on price, when we eliminated price, a new issue, which I guess I would even say is more complex, percolated right to the top. So if we can't give people good quality technology to utilize, even if you give away the internet for free, it's fairly meaningless.
1: Right. And I, I'd argue that's still related to price, right? Uh, because somebody doesn't have a good piece of technology to use the internet. It's usually because they don't have the dollars to purchase that. Right. Poverty. Fair, enough, fair, fair, right.
3: fair enough. Fair enough. Yep. So, so we partnered with a, a group called P- PCs for people where they recycle corporate technology. And that actually was a really good model just at the, But dropping 35,000 units in their lap was fairly impractical. They did not have access to that type of um, equipment.
0: And, Angel, let me me ask you to jump in, but I want to come back to this then, Travis. Go ahead, Angel. You look like you want to jump in.
2: Yeah, just that the looking at the gaps. So the gap in the technology seems challenging to Travis because he understands the broadband piece of it other folks are like oh we can deal with the device part of it we don't have to figure out the broadband piece of it right because mm-hmm. they're not travis so each everybody views challenges differently uh cleveland foundation was looking at what they're doing asset mapping looking at what cleveland had and what they didn't have was cheap devices so they filled that gap by bringing pcs for people same organization to cleveland okay mm-hmm. So I think it, and I totally agree with Deb that the poverty piece is the piece we have to take into account because that's the, what are the barriers? And if the barrier is poverty, then there's also probably an undereducation component. So then that's the digital literacy. And so that person's, the bigger pieces of their lives, the technology is just the one piece of it.
0: So I want to, I want to come back and I, I agree with all of that, Angela, um, one of the things that, that I took away, first of all, people from St. Paul save the world every day, PCs for people coming out of St. Paul, very close to my house. <laughs> um, but the, one of the things that took away Travis in our discussions is that if to me, like you were like, I wanna do this thing, I can do the internet connectivity piece. And, and, the, and you were having this conversation at least around local leaders of the city of Minneapolis. And they were kind of like, okay, well, we wanna do nothing. <laughs> and there's like a coordination role Which 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 Angela, you were just describing Regarding the Cleveland Foundation PCs for People is ready to like jump in And do this other part And it seems like what's missing in Minneapolis Is someone to figure out how to fill in those gaps And to get those other pieces done Because not every city has an ISP Willing to say, we'll give you 30,000 You know, um, uh, configurations In apartment buildings Um but it I you know my my I we just had a meeting in St. Paul, Minnesota talking about how to deal with the lack of good internet access and connectivity, digital literacy on the east side and people were asking what's the situation in Minneapolis and I was like they have all the opportunity in the world and the city just won't do anything about it. The city just wants to yell at people and try to make it out like other people need to step up and solve this. And so Travis, am I overselling that?
3: Um it it was a little disheartening to see and, and I, again, I don't really interact with government entities very often, but it was, it was, it was disheartening to see that they had a, they had a piece of the puzzle and it would have been nice if they could have run with their piece. And I think they were really relying heavily on us in the private sector to solve this problem. And I was happy to help where we could, you know, I, th- I think Angela's spot on that we have one piece of it, but I don't, I don't have the ability to set policies or I don't have the ability to go to the, the large corporations here and ask them to donate technology. I don't have any of those abilities. I just have my one little slice of the pie.
0: I shouldn't sit here in badmouth Minneapolis and say, don't you agree, Travis? Enjoy those meetings next week. Well, <laughs> I, only,
3: I, I only hear from them when it's time for elections anyway. So, um, you know, it's, it, no, it, it is, it's, you know, if you're really trying to solve a problem, you know, we need everybody to help, and we were willing to help. And PCs for People were willing to help, but it didn't go a lot further than that.
2: Okay, there was I, a lot of yeah. Go ahead. And yeah. so I live in Columbus, Ohio, and I relay this story often, um, since there was nothing happening in Columbus. It was really on the embarrassing side. Right. So like I knew it was going the great work in Chattanooga and I knew the great work in Kansas City. Like I knew all these great things going on. But like I can't do local and national at the same time. I just don't have enough bandwidth. So I would just complain in Columbus. <laughs> 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 COVID hits there. And this community is knocking it out of the park. Like it is really incredibly exciting. The city's engaged, the foundation is engaged, the public library executive director leads these really intense meetings, which we were doing weekly. And the city is now using their fiber as backhaul for some community networks, not citywide. Four neighborhoods, they've chosen four neighborhoods using CARES Act money to jumpstart it and they're looking at sustainability. They're being very careful. Like they're not just jumping in and that's just one piece of all the stuff that's going on. Right, like, and, and, it's, and now folks are starting to talk about who can keep it going. Some of the discussion is around the planning entity. We have a regional planning entity. Are they the right ones? Probably, they're figuring out, can they do it? If so, what would that position look like? Should there be someone in the city? If so, which department, like these are the kinds of conversations that are happening. I feel such um, like hope that real lasting systems change will occur. And Deb can talk about all the amazing stuff going on in Chattanooga, like that you all have those different pieces, right? I wish every city had an enterprise center. Okay, look, they don't, right? So how do we help them figure out, okay, whose job is it then to, to do that coordination kind of work?
0: Now, I wanted to pivot back to Deb, because not only do you, are you an organization that specifically tries to fill that gap, Deb, you personally have experience at multiple levels of trying to develop these programs and that sort of thing, having built Techco's Home in Boston. Um, so, so where do you want to jump in with this? And then let's not talk about what Chattanooga is doing yet with the schools. We'll come to that in a second.
1: I would say with all the cities that I've talked to around this issue, the number one concern has been home internet. It really has, Travis. There are a lot of cities out there who would be jumping through hoops to get you to to provide what you've offered in Minneapolis. I think that is the number one most difficult part of solving this puzzle because we don't have a lot of folks like you that are willing to do that, right? Mm. I think that's where my big concern has been. I agree with Angela getting the the devices other than the current uh, supply chain issues which have been challenging for us. Um, we've been able to find ways to purchase computers for uh, many thousands of children. So it's possible to do that. It isn't easy to figure out the solution on the internet side, because not every community uh, has, a lot of communities have only one provider, right? There's a monopoly, or even a duopoly, and there's no incentive to make that kind of gift to a community. You know, some of the ISP stepped up and did some really helpful things at the beginning of the pandemic and I was really pleased about that. Uh, I feel like there was an opportunity to potentially do more and to make it more long lasting. Uh, I would have been pleased about that. But I think that um, the piece about um Internet for me is the the data caps are really one of the biggest concerns I have. And I see it happening across the country that as a parent, I might have to say, you get to go to school today, but you can't because we can't have you both on at the same time because we can't afford all the data that's going to use. I worry about all of that. I think that is a challenge across the country that we've got to solve.
0: Yes, and I wanna I wanna um, echo all that. We're gonna come back to you in a second Deb, to talk about now what Chattanooga is doing. And then I want to make sure we don't lose the piece on on what Angela might be hearing from the Hill. Um, but the... Um one of the things I want to say is that I I want to give credit to Comcast Um, in 8 million, um, you know, uh, people connected, I think 2 million families over the years of the internet um, essentials program, we can talk about limitations with that, and how we would like other carriers to at least do that well, (laughs) which they're not. Um, But um, I don't want to just ignore that, that they have had this, um, and AT&T has certainly spent a lot on advertising how much it's doing for families. So, um, you know, that's, maybe something. Um, <laughs> Deb, why don't you tell us a little bit about what Chattanooga is doing and what you're coordinating down there?
1: Sure. Really, it's, uh, it's stunning what they've been able to pull off uh, pretty early on. We, we've been talking about how we're going to solve this issue for a long time. And EPB is our uh, utility provider and they provide our broadband. And they um, have wanted to do something that would help. Uh, but we do have some state limitations due to state law. So we had to get pretty creative. And so at the beginning of the pandemic, David Wade from UPB, Mayor Burke from the city, Mayor Coppinger from the county, the superintendent of schools, Brian Johnson, and all the local philanthropy in our organization got together and said, what the heck are we gonna do? We gotta do something. And so we came up with a plan that will connect 30,000 children in 17,000 homes, to um, no cost to them, internet access that is at least 100 megabits symmetrical for the next 10 years. And so we're doing that by purchasing the upfront infrastructure, the ONTs and the enclosures and the routers uh, and the installation. And then the cost that brings the cost, the yearly cost of each home's internet so low that between EPB and the school department, they can actually pay the bill. So the upfront costs were $8.2 million and we're pretty close to $8.2 million. Um, And I, I love that it's, you know, so we had a low-cost plan called NetBridge here from EPB, but it was still too expensive because of the way the state law works. They even took people on NetBridge and gave them free internet. They Even if you had a bad debt with them, they gave you internet. So it's been pretty amazing. And the process has required an awful lot of energy and people. I think one of the tricky things, Travis, I was thinking this when you were talking about free internet, when you tell somebody, here, I got something for you and it's free, there's a lot of skepticism with good reason. Mm-hmm. And so how do you talk about it? <clears throat> resources and why it's being provided and the background behind it. And we need to bring in people that folks trust, right? To be part of that conversation. Schools do tend to be trusted here as is Tech Goes Home, which is one of our programs at the Enterprise Center. So we were able to leverage some of that trust to try and get folks to sign up. But we have connected um, over 6,000 homes already. Uh, and that's you know over 10,000 children. Uh, now online that weren't online. And so, and we cobbled together the money from city, the county, uh, EPB, the schools, local philanthropy has been amazing. And we did get a CARES Act grant for 1.66 million. And we're using the vast majority of that to help pay for the cost. So it's been pretty powerful and and the results are amazing. It's just-
0: Deb, can you you just tell us quickly though, it seems to me, and I know, I don't want to ask you to divulge all your funding to the extent that you can, but it seems like a lot of it has come from different pots of government and some of it from private philanthropy. Is that accurate?
1: That's accurate. So, you know, the Tennessee CARES dollars that we got, The amount is 1.5 million that we're giving to this project. Local philanthropy donated a million. Blue Cross Blue Shield Foundation of Tennessee donated a million. We got 1.5 million from the district, I mean, from the city, 1.5 from Hamilton County. So there were a lot of city dollars invested. It's a good way to spend city dollars, right? That's an investment that is long-term and it makes a difference. And you can even consider it an economic development driver. So part of, part of my goal in this is to not just help the student, but the whole family, because everybody in that family now has this amazing asset. And we're thinking about how do we do trainings online and get people connected to opportunities through that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and we're also planning some uh, pretty serious research of the whole project, both to help us do a better job of it, but also to share with other cities.
0: Right now, I want to say we could spend a lot of time talking about Chattanooga, and I will will direct people to check out a podcast that Deb and I did with Jeff Milner, who is one of the more entertaining people you'll ever find in this space. So um, let me just throw that in there as a sweetener. People should go check that out on the Broadband Bits podcast feed. (laughs) Angela, do you want to jump in on that at all?
2: Um yeah, but I forget what I, I
0: had. <laughs> so <laughs> let's let's talk about the hill then, quick, because I don't want to spend too much time talking about D.C. I really want to argue about something else that okay. um, I've been thinking about. <laughs> so, okay. what, what, do you have any sense? I mean, so we you gave us three words. You are, um, I would say, cautiously optimistic would be how I would read that. Um, you know, do you do you have a sense of? I think. Let me just. Frame this just a little bit differently, many of us thought the Democrats were going to take the Senate and there would be basically real pressure on them to put a lot of money into it. And now we don't even know who's going to be in control of the Senate and uh, we don't know what priorities they're going to have.
2: The broadband deployment piece is bipartisan and growing in support. So I, I think that's pretty, That's I'm feeling confident that will happen. The digital equity piece of it, less bipartisan shouldn't be but it is it has turned out to be partisan and I think it's just because the democrats got a hold of it first so we have to fix that we have to make it bipartisan Um, and I do think there is a chance because I think if if the deployment piece happens then we can get the deck digital equity piece tacked on Um, I don't know that there's full understanding really that that even the money that has been devoted so far has been just for infrastructure deployment and nothing for adoption other than top days and I don't know if you might count top days back a long time ago. But
0: nope, too far back.
2: Yeah, we're not counting it. <laughs> so all we've had was those BTOP dollars, nothing recently, nothing since Obama days. And we need that deployment. We need the, the deployment and the adoption to be to be understood as... You got to have, if you have one, you have the other. And if you deploy in a rural area and folks can't afford it or they don't know how to use it, we could let everybody in on a secret. They won't adopt it. <laughs> so, right, right. Right. Well, so like, like that yeah. idea of just addressing one and not the other is, it's silly.
0: Yes, I've spent a fair amount of time driving around a lot of different states. And I feel like people aren't familiar with the kind of poverty you see in rural Maine, in rural New York, you know, uh, certainly, states people I think more often associate rural poverty with the South. Uh, it's everywhere, frankly, and, and the subsidies are typically building fifty dollars a month plans at best. Uh, so that is not a solution for families that are that are stretched really thin in in rural areas. Um, now, I'm trying to think. There's so many different places I want to go. Well, since I have all of us here, but I think the one I really want to jump into is is a question about what what redlining means. Because this has come up recently with some well-intentioned efforts um, that I don't know if any of them have been public yet, but some discussions behind the scenes as to how one would use policy to force certain providers to serve everyone, to stop what's been called redlining. And I think it is accurate in some cases to call, for instance, what NDIA, National Digital Inclusion Alliance, has called out in Detroit and Cleveland from AT&T as redlining. I also think that it's a pretty big gray area. <laughs> so I would say that 18 is on the other side of that, but um, let me just ask, maybe we can go around really quickly. Um, what is redlining in, in 2020, 2021?
2: Redlining is, is when, so, so there's digital redlining and then there's just redlining, right? So mm-hmm. digital redlining uh, technologies that aren't in certain areas, cause those areas are poor and or people of color. So, we know that this happens, that AT&T has done this in particular cities, not hard to map. We will, if anybody wants to do it, we will just show you how it's, it's all been documented. You can do it yourself. But the grayer part I think is Verizon skipping whole cities. Uh, that's harder to, are mm-hmm. they, right? Like that, I think that's the gray that you're, that, you, that you get to Chris.
0: Yeah, well, so then in
2: that term can lead to confusion.
0: Yeah, the reason I have an issue with the term is that it's like there was a time when at and was required to serve everyone. And then the federal government said, uh, eh, you don't really have to serve everyone. But some of the states still had certain requirements under certain circumstances in which they had to serve everyone. And the state of Ohio said to at and nope, we are affirmatively telling you, you do not have to serve everyone. And at and said, great we're just gonna serve the people that we think. And, and let's just be clear. I don't think at and actually knows how to maximize their profit. I have very little like, faith in the capacity of at and to make the correct decision. But at and is investing in the places in which its executive team thinks they will maximize their profit.
2: It is about maximizing profit. And I, for us to change policies, for us to create solutions, we have to recognize realities. And are we going to force for-profit companies that are not regulated? Can we make, can we get them to be regulated? And this is where I disagree and do we with want to? My, do we want to, right? And I disagree with some of my colleagues about going like full on regulating. I, there's some middle ground where we make lots of space for lots of new entrants to the field. And we do have some regulation because in some places, in, I don't know that you're going to
1: get any new, 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 entrance.
0: Right. Well, I'm hoping Deb, you'll be super pro regulation because we could use that voice right now.
1: (laughs) I'd be pro anything that would get folks connected. I don't think we have time to wait. And I I would say, you know, even when I was in Boston, uh, Verizon came in, made a deal with the city, we'll connect everyone. And they walked away after they'd connected the wealthy parts of town. Right. So when that happens, you recognize the value of those agreements, right? There really isn't one. And I I get frustrated because it creates a circumstance where there's an internet for poor people, an internet for rich people, and they're often paying the same thing, but they have a totally different level of service. And it's just not acceptable. It's just not acceptable. We wouldn't allow that to happen for any other infrastructure that is necessary for survival. And I'd argue forever that this is necessary. Um, especially with all our kids' homes. So why would we do that in this circumstance? Why would we make it possible for homes to have no internet connection or the only access to internet is so expensive it's not useful?
0: Now, I just want to uh, bring Travis in, but first um, you teed up, Deb. Angela, you did a paper on this. What was the name of that paper, The specifically the pricing and how people pay oh, the same okay. amount for different amounts? Yeah,
2: tier flattening. Tier that, flattening. Do, it, do a Google well, search but, on that. Yeah. So in places where the infrastructure is upgraded for certain neighborhoods and not other neighborhoods, everybody pays the same amount. It, 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 like there's variations in it if you really want to get up into the higher speeds, but at the base speeds, it's all in that 60 to $80 range.
0: Right. Now, one of the other issues I have with some of this discussion is people act as though, for-profit corporations, companies act similarly. And I would say the big national ones are just fundamentally different in ways that are irrelevant. And so um, you know, um, I've had this conversation recently with someone from another larger, small ISP, kind of like Travis on steroids. Um, and and they were kind of like saying, look, if you're gonna try and force me to build everywhere at once, I'm not even sure how I would do that. I mean, I, you know, Travis, you can give us a little sense of what it's like You know, you just—I don't even know if you're going to build anywhere last year. You just got off the call with your bank, and you don't look super happy. So, um,
3: well, I mean, you know, (laughs) I can only—I can only talk to Minneapolis. So, you know, again, my 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 scope is relatively small. So, so keep that in mind with my comments. But I found interesting the definition of red line here in Minneapolis is those that don't have the service yet. And what I mean by that is. As we grow throughout the years, and we do, our, we do our little building block, we go from neighborhood to neighborhood to neighborhood. And um, there's this really this conversation and we've gotten blasted in the, in the paper about how we are redlining. And then four years later, when we get to that neighborhood, just through the logistics of construction, we, it never gets recanted. okay? Now we, we don't have access to federal funds. We don't have access to state funds. We don't have access to city funds. So I have to get all of my debt through the private sector. So, and I have to have a financial model that pays that back. So if there is an area of town that isn't going to, we don't think now, and I'll, and I'll touch on this in just a second, we don't think we can, we can get the return as fast as we can in another area we have we can't build we can't put all of our funds into that area in one year so we put it in over like five to six years so we build it kind of at a smaller pace but there's a big misnomer here about the areas of that everyone always calls the wealthy neighborhoods quite frankly they're the worst neighborhoods to bring new service to uh the area of town here in minneapolis called kenwood which we did six years ago has our worst adoption rate but has our highest income levels because saving a few dollars a month, or they're generally older people that are not as technically savvy as maybe the younger folks are. So if, if anyone's looking to build a network, don't go to the wealthy neighborhoods, that's your fastest way to go out of business. You know, you wanna get kind of in the middle, and then what we do is we allocate funds on the edge, because at the end of the day, we have to repay this debt back. So in, in the other little color to attach that, so there was something that cities had and they had it for a while, was is they had a thing called a cable franchise agreement.
0: In so Minneapolis again, still does. It, Some, in min, in Minneapolis yeah. Okay,
3: well, that's what we have. Again, I'm dealing yeah. it from our lens. Mm-hmm. Well, we went down to the city of Minneapolis and requested a cable franchise agreement, and we were denied. And all we had asked for is to have the same contract that CenturyLink had with the city of Minneapolis. And they said no, because the theory I have is that CenturyLink could fight a battle with Comcast that we never could. Okay, if they got into a big a big battle. Can I clarify for
0: a second? Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. So
0: so the deal is basically that, like, if you get a franchise, you have to have a plan to build out in a certain exactly. number of years, which I think is like four or five years. I mean, it's something it's like five years. yeah. Five years. OK. Yep. And now CenturyLink didn't have that plan, but CenturyLink has lawyers and they basically yep. indemnified yep. the city that, hey, exactly. if we get you to break the state law, we'll pay for the case. And yeah. and so CenturyLink got away with just violating it effectively. Now, there's a lot of different arguments and I don't want to get too far down this, Um, uh, but but you're right. That was something. And it's and it's and people still debate whether or not those build-outs are uh, – when they're applicable, I should say.
3: Yeah. And, and no, for us, it, actually, it ended up being a blessing in disguise because with the advent of streaming media, linear television is kind of becoming a thing of the past. So, so I'll, but, just leave, I'll just enjoy, leave it I at that. I will to bring
0: you in here in a second because yeah. I can see you're ready. But let me just say a couple of other clarifying things. One is, Travis, I think it's going to take you, what, like 20 years to get in front of nearly every door, something like that?
3: Well – now there's a whole other component here. that. Okay. Well then let's let the, it in. No, 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 yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because it's, it's the practicality of building here. We don't have access to utility poles. I mean, there's mm-hmm. the advantages other cities have that we don't. So right. I'll just leave it
0: at that. Sure. You only get to build eight months a year too.
3: Exactly. It freezes. It's cold here. <laughs> yeah.
2: The, so when the FCC determined that cities had less jurisdiction To negotiate with the internet service providers in their mind the FCC's minds whatever that it was to to move things along more quickly and when they did that there was an article out of uh, Texas public radio and they had interviewed a local government there who said that they were just about to implement where they were going to have lower pull attachment rates in the less affluent neighborhoods and higher rates in the more affluent neighborhoods so they were finding ways to address some of what traps is bringing up right like how do we make it more appealing to be in the areas where it may have been determined to have a lower or a slower rate of returning and now
1: that's
0: that's right. And government can do that. Now, as, as Deb and I found out and learning a lot about pole attachments working together at Next Century Cities, um, the the issue is, is that the pole owners also have ways of sort of throwing in problems that make it um, the city's charge on the on the right-of-way may not be the determining characteristic of whether you can get on the poles or not. Deb?
1: If I could say, it's interesting because the rules applied to cities, to municipalities, but they didn't... Re- apply to anybody else. And there are plenty of cities that don't own, own their poles, right? But it only applied to cities. And I, you know, that there's some great frustration with that. I have to say, after all the years, Chris, we spent talking about poll attachments, I cannot look at a poll the same again. <laughs> I'm identifying every piece on that pole. Um, but I, I think it still it does the I think you were probably talking about San Jose, Angela. Um,
2: they, they did it. it yeah.
1: No, it was it was a place in Texas, it was a small town in Texas that
2: huh. was about it was some text. this Texas public radio reporter found this town. I didn't even know that they were on this path. And that's what they were t- what they said. And San
1: Jose did something similar, right? They charged more in certain parts of the town where they right. thought the return on the investment would be higher and charge less in order to get people to expend their dollars in the parts of town where it might not be so advantageous. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really a smart move, right? Yeah.
0: yeah. Now, I just want to throw back something that um, in the in the a couple of episodes ago, Doug Dawson was on and we were talking about building fiber in cities. And he made the point that um, that he thinks the private markets don't put a lot of money in them because they think that they're going to fail and that a lot of them do fail. And just I want to tie that back together then, the fact that this is a hard business model in cities. And Travis, you and I had, had a conversation and I was relaying it to someone who had accused you of being racist and accused you of being a redliner because you had built out to to more affluent um, parts of the city, um, working class areas and in solid upper middle class areas before you built out to some of the areas that have a higher preponderance of African-Americans. And I said, well, you know, one of the things that I think changed in my mind is that knowing that Travis's business plan isn't like some kind of limited liability thing. It's actually his house. Like, like, it's not just a matter of like, Travis is like, business goes south and Oh boo hoo. He has a million dollars to return, to retire on. Like this is Uh, a, these small ISPs. It's a really big deal to get this money. And people don't understand that, that you have liability and that if your business plan fails, you're in big trouble.
3: Oh, that's 90% of the exercise uh, in trying to do this. You know, you don't, you don't get a lot of help in cities. Um, Again, using our, our example here, this is why you don't see a lot of this going on in major, major metropolitan areas. I, my career goal is to be the first NFL city that's 100% covered by fiber. Um, we're about 50% there now, but it takes a lot of cash. It takes a lot of time. We don't we can't get on a pole, so we have to dig everything underground. It freezes like an ice cube here for half the year. So there's a lot of logistical problems. And one thing I thought might be interesting to talk to, you, Chris, is is like in our fiber network, we're in front of thousands of public housing facilities. We have zero of them cabled.
0: Yeah, no, this is, and I, I tried to break into the Minneapolis yeah. public housing and we have a former staffer who is a legislative aide in the city. And it was just yeah. like, whether it's them or the park board, I got to say, like, I think local government often gets an unfair reputation, but there are some people in local government that really live up to that low reputation. Angela? Oh, it's terrible.
2: Can't, but the federal possibilities, right? In that particular example, where are the feds in this, right? Why are the feds not paying Travis to roll that out to, the, to those, those housing authorities? Does that seem like an obvious one that they should be covering?
3: Well, like, the challenge the challenge for us is do you allocate money to try to navigate the gauntlet of government or do you allocate money to build fiber and hook customers up and because we have a limited amount of resources every year we just it's just not honestly it's just not even worth the battle but, what, who to I'm talk suggesting,
2: to. but what i'm suggesting travis is that so we've talked about how much money the federal government has put into broadband deployment already um and that it hasn't addressed for the most part uh our lowest income community members so if the determination for where deployment money went were to include economically underserved then all of a sudden you and others would be eligible because you could then do it in a way that made financial sense
3: oh that would be the utopia because there's you know there's thousands of small isps like us across the country and actually, I think that they're the ones that, if I was in charge, would put my most hope on actually make doing something and and making things happen. Um, you know, Chattanooga is a small ISP in the scheme of things, um, but trying to understand how to how to the gauntlet you have to run through and who is the champion that can make that happen. I after I don't know we've only been doing this 26 years. I can't figure out who it is
0: one of the things that I think we're hoping for is that the FCC will reform lifeline in ways that will incent entire buildings um, in similar ways that um, school districts uh, do with the public lunch program and and just sort of try to simplify it, get rid of the red tape and try to make it easier to get a reimbursement for entire buildings. Um, but we have a question that I want to ask, which you know, again, I feel like it's, it's a really interesting question, which is sort of where does all of the stuff we're talking about, how does how do the opportunity zones and the CRA and sort of these different because of a failure of government policy, we have all of these other things that are also government policies tinkering around the edges. And are any of them likely to move the needle?
2: I've heard examples. You. Do you, I, I've heard examples. So there's a small isp in chicago that ndia talks to as you know you talk to travis there's i talk to james right there's those who give us our information to help us understand and they are working in the projects and opportunity zones um and with cra ndia one of our successes was to get the office of the comptroller of the currency to add examples in to their cra rules that include digital equity So if you are doing financial literacy, well, it includes digital literacy, of course. How can you do financial literacy if you don't know how to use your device? Because we want all our financial literacy, their banking to be done online. So we got some of that added in. So I think that's the tweaking around the edges. It's an existing policy. Let's do it. Mm -hmm. And some of the ideas that are coming up now about how do we get at the subsidy is the same kind of idea. What are existing pots of money? I think one of the obvious ones is Medicare and Medicaid might it lower their costs if they had more of their patients online and knew how to use the tools, then it's actually more of an investment for them, not an additional cost. To I pay would just them. throw
0: in Department of Veteran Affairs as well for the exact same yes. reason.
2: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, no, we could totally go down the list of who would it, who would actually see a positive on their bottom line if they were to pay for the internet, pay for a device and pay for digital literacy training.
1: I think one of the challenges is uh, we know that all the best work is happening locally, right? I mean, this is it, small ISPs like Travis's, uh, municipal broadband like in Chattanooga. It all requires local knowledge, uh, local investment, lo- local understanding of what is CRA, how can we leverage it, what is Lifeline, how can we leverage that. It asks a lot of, of local leaders to understand all these little pieces so you can put together that puzzle. And I think it's a challenge for a lot of communities. I think we're lucky here that we've got the kind of leadership that really cares about this and is always looking for those solutions, but it's pretty dang hard.
0: The Community Broadband Bits podcast for this week is an interview with Jennifer Hawkins from Providence, Rhode Island. And um, they did an interesting Wi-Fi approach uh, to try and uh, improve access. And they had five banks that kicked in money. And I suspect that the CRA really helped them to do that because they could get those credits for putting money into that project. It wasn't an investment, it was a donation, which um, is really helpful. That's awesome. Now, Travis, you've talked about opportunity zones. I I like to talk about opportunity zones as often just a way to, get money to rich people because Opportunity Zones is a history of corruption and fraud. Um, Now, you see that there's ways in which either you can be corrupt and fraudulent, maybe, Travis, I don't know, there's a different side of you that I don't know, (laughs) or you see a real opportunity to make an investment here in some areas that are struggling.
3: Actually, that that piece of legislation had anything I've ever seen come out from the federal level had the most uh, potential opportunity to get additional investment dollars into a community but I, I was a little bit turned off on, on it when we had lunch with that one politician, you and I, Chris, and I brought up opportunities. So he's like, Oh, that was a Republican initiative. It can't be good. It's like, okay, really? How about we I just, it might know, be overstating yeah.
0: it a little bit, but then- <laughs> no, that's,
3: that, that's what it was. All right. And so I'm just like, okay, this, now I have to deal with this.
0: That was you know, I, mean, I'm, I, yeah.
3: I mean, I'm not, I'm not a politician and I'm not really interested in politics. Mm-hmm. So I'm just trying to help people get connected. And so I'm just like, Oh, great. I don't want to, But it's, you know, again, if you could find, like we're doing a deal over in Oshkosh, Wisconsin right now, where we're helping a young entrepreneur to get started. We're putting some opportunities on dollars there. We're leveraging some dollars from the state. We're putting in some dollars and we got a senior lender from a private bank locally. And we're going to, we're going to get 6,000 homes hooked up in an underserved area next summer. So we're trying to take all these programs, but It was only because the Opportunity Zone was there that we were able to to get enough seed capital in there to get the ball rolling. So I I think it's a great area. I think it's very underutilized here in the Twin Cities of Minneapolis, St. Paul.
1: And and again, you gotta know about it to to access it. You have to understand it to access it. It's a challenge for small communities.
3: I would love to find somebody out there that I could hire that could help us and other small ISPs leverage these thousands of programs that I randomly hear about, but by the time you hear about it, it's too late to participate in it.
1: Well, you don't have the time to create the the proposal. I mean,
2: it'd
1: be nice if there were one program that you could apply to that would manage Yeah.
0: Now, so I want to, with the 10 minutes we have left or so, I want to ask, I want to come back to something that you had said, Angela, regarding the training. And I think I think people who are likely to be listening to this—people with undergrad, possibly graduate degrees, people who have a lot of experience in this field—all of us ignore all the ways in which we are ignore that there's fraud around us. Um, you know, um, the the emails we get—it's just for us. We don't even notice it, right? And in part because it's not targeted at us, right? Nobody thinks that 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 Travis is going to send money to the prince in Nigeria, and so they are targeting specific people. And, and this is, again, this comes back to this issue. I think like we, we need to lower the price and that is a major barrier because even after we give literacy training to, to folks, then they will need to be able to afford it. But the logistics of, of providing this training to me just seem to be really challenging. And, and so Deb, you created one of these programs. Let me start with you and just get a sense, like, you know, we're talking about trying to do this on like across the nation. There's, I mean, there's hundreds of groups that are doing this, I'm guessing, but we need thousands probably. Um, so, so what do we need to do this step?
1: I, I'll tell you, it got a whole lot harder when the pandemic hit because all the training that we did was in person. And, and I'll tell you, it's not that complex. It really isn't that complex. Um, tech goes home here. Tech goes home in Boston. We've got tons of curriculum pods created. They're open and free to anybody to use, take, do, use them for your own training. I think the challenge for us got uh, more intense when we got to the point where to get somebody to the training, which is now online, they had to be online. <laughs> But how do you train somebody to be online when you can't? So it was kind of a, a real dilemma for us. And so what we did is we, uh, we have a couple of different things. Sometimes it's a one-on-one. Sometimes it's a phone call. Sometimes it's you know, FaceTime. A lot of folks have phones and they can do FaceTime. Um, sometimes it's a small group, but we're getting folks online and then providing the training remotely, um, which changes the game. But there are a couple of things that I think are really important in digital equity work. And one is that whoever does the training needs to be somebody that people trust. And that's why we do a train the trainer model and we work with schools and churches and libraries and community organizations, and they provide the training. Second, it should be in the neighborhood where a person lives. And third, it should be somebody that's gonna be there after the training's over so they can go back and work with that person again. But if the curriculum is fully created and you can do a train-the-trainer model, it's not that difficult. I think the trick, uh, you know, you talked about fraud, that is a really nuanced area. Uh, and so we, we actually do train on, on how to recognize something that just don't open it. If you're not expecting it, don't open it, right? Helping people understand that challenge. But I, I think, you know, we've, we've come up with a model that's working right now. Our classes are full to overflowing. We have more requests than we've got seats.
3: Great.
0: Angela, how do we do this? <laughs> Same question.
2: Uh, we need money, We need a lot of money. It's, a, it's, a, it's adult education.
0: How would you spread Should that money out? fund. How would you get it into the right hands? Because one of the things I'm afraid of is that when there's a lot of money, you have a lot of people oh, who are just good yeah. at getting the money.
2: We are seeing that right now, actually. Not that there's a lot of money, but there's more philanthropy money than before for digital equity. And all of a sudden, poof, poof, folks are all of a sudden available to do the work. Like, <laughs> where were you? Where you the right, there's definitely, that is already happening right now. Um, I think the trick is what Deb said in that trusted piece. They should have to prove that they already have relationships in with the communities that they want to serve. Um, And that means they are already running programs of some other kind. And they're gonna add this program, not that it's a brand new program. I mean, a brand new organization, maybe in some places, but in those places where it's a brand new organization, it's more that the whole community is saying this is necessary. I have a lot of conversations with folks who mean well, probably, and see dollar signs. And I try to figure out, it's almost impossible, really, to figure out like which side is heavier, the mean well, the dollar signs. I don't know. You just try to guide people to do the right thing.
0: And and Travis, one of the things I'm curious about is how low you think you can get your price if you don't have to be the first line of 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 help desk for people that are new to learning this sort of literacy.
3: Yeah. So, so we figured out the kind of the cost of capital is about $10 a month. Okay. So what we're doing and we've been working with PCs for people on it is let's try to get 10 bucks to cover just the cost of installing the ethernet jack and running the fiber to the building and and those type of things. If they will do the tech support, customer service, billing, you know, simple things like billing, like a lot of people, you know, they pay with cash. So you have to have have the ability to collect
0: cash. Just to be clear, your workflow is mostly credit cards, I'm guessing, right? Currently,
3: yeah, yeah, yeah. Our direct billing is credit cards, but when you get into some of these um, communities credit cards are not a big thing. You know, you, there's um, cash is kind of king and you have to be able to collect it and turn service on, et cetera. And then, you know, I really like the point you made about trusted in your community. Cause we've got a very ethnically diverse community up here. So with uh, like people in the Somali community, we'll have a Somali speaking person that goes out to the house that understands the culture of, you know, like uh, entering a home. There's, you know, there's things that, you know, I wouldn't necessarily know that that would is is helpful, and then um, yeah, train the trainer, train people. We we try to find technology champions in the in the in the buildings, so where they can just go to their neighbor. And, you know, this this is not to dwell too much for the technology today isn't like the stuff I grew up with, where it's like command prompts and green screens and all that, <laughs> you know, you know, we, we, we try to make it was know, on as four hundreds. Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> you know, it's,
3: it's, it's not like that, you know, it's like, can you, you know, we'll, we'll send someone out to their house and hook up their TV, because what we've also learned about technology, and I don't want to dwell on this too much, is if you make it enjoyable for people they'll start to get, use it. So we've been, I've been a real proponent of giving them like a proper windows computer. And even if there's a game or two on there, good, let the kids get, let the kids get used to playing these games and interacting online and and whatnot. And if we can encourage that behavior, they'll get addicted. like I did,
0: wasn't there an urban tale that, um, solitaire was on the early windows computer to teach people how to use the mouse. to Yeah. Practice it, it? yeah. Or minesweeper. Sure. Yeah. Um,
1: I was going to say real quickly that I think that whole idea of um, giving people what they're interested in is part Mm -hmm. of what you do as well. So if you've got a group of seniors in front of you, you're going to do something very different with that group than you would with a group of new parents, right? And so figuring out the interests of the people you are training helps you to make that connection, whether that's a game or it's a grandparent who wants to, to see their grandkids you use, you leverage that interest. I think that's really an important part of this work. You got it, yep.
0: Let's go out with a bang, and that is just how furious should be we be? And, and honestly, there's only like extremely high levels of fury allowed um, at how little state and federal government have done over the past eight months. Um, you know, I don't. I'm torn between being just furious at the elected officials and in awe of the cable and telephone lobbyists. <laughs> like, who somehow I assume a part of the reason that we've seen practically nothing done as millions of children are basically being ripped out of school by a, by a disease. Uh, Angela, you look very serious and and quite angry.
2: I am quite angry. We've been doing a lot of work with Sioux Falls, South Dakota, um, which has been fabulous to get to know the community there. It's a
0: fascinating, uh, it's an interesting town. I mean, I've it, been there some times. Is, yeah.
2: I have not been there and who knows when I'll get to go. Uh, but the government came up with a use of CARES Act, the state government, use of CARES Act money to cover internet. But not if you had, like if you've had it from July, 3rd, July 1st until now, you're ineligible and they gave a 3 week window to sign up and it's the families that have to sign up with the state government not going through a school district or another community institution like the whole structure was
0: not what Alabama did Alabama is quite impressive from what i can tell right. with that program right
2: so so the huge variety that's out there and and every now and then i have to remind myself because i work so often with those that are doing amazing work right um New York is, has some new stuff coming out that's gonna be awesome. Uh, all the work that Connecticut, like we, we know all the ones that have done great work and I tend to live in that land. And then sometimes I do something in another state like South Dakota, I'm like, oh, there's reality smacking me up against the face.
0: Deb, yeah, I've been amazed to see so many people in Tennessee singing praises to Chattanooga from Nashville, the, the capital. That's not something we see often.
1: Uh, I, I think Chattanooga uh, was early in this game and has really used this opportunity to create new opportunities for the city. I mean it goes well beyond the provision of broadband and but their research and you know microgrids and all that work. And we we do have a state broadband office, and they're really lovely folks. They don't have a ton of money to share and there are rules about that money, but I'm glad that we have them because they've been helpful to us. But we still do have some limitations here in in Tennessee that I wish would be removed from the books. It is frustrating to me that the very people we've all said are solving the problem, which is local folks, are the very people not given the empowerment to do the job.
0: Now, but tell me what you think about the federal level, Deb because you've tracked this you lived in dc for a while and and i just you know it's it's amazing to me i mean the cares act it the language was so bad for broadband deployers i mean as travis notes he's not even eligible for any broadband programs effectively um but like just it's it's almost like i'm 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 out of words i've run out
1: (laughs) i think i have i am despondent is probably the right way to say it. I just don't see the federal government solving this problem anytime soon. And part of it is what you talked about, Travis. Did the Rs put it forward? Did the Ds put it forward? And you talked about Angela, it's gotta be bipartisan. It doesn't go anywhere without that. How much energy do we have to put in to get some small little slice of something back? And it's frustrating. I felt like I banged my head against the wall when I was in DC all the time.
0: I am happy to call out anyone, even people that I really like on this stuff. I do want to make clear, it's not a pox on both of their houses equally. I think the Senate is totally um, deserves the lion's share of the responsibility here, which is run by Republicans right now. Um, and and so I am frustrated that we haven't seen more. And I'm not going to sit here up and say it's 100% one side's fault but like we can argue about whether it's 65 or 85. (laughs) It's definitely leaning in one direction.
1: We just made it all partisan. And it's just, I mean, when you live in a community that doesn't have broadband, it's not partisan, right? I don't care if you are conservative or progressive, you need broadband. And so uh, that's what was hard for me. And there were times when I set up meetings with uh, senators, and after I walked out, I watched the representative of a li- large ISP walk in. Right, I know that they were there to counter whatever I said, and and that was frustrating. It's just really been hard.
0: So, any closing comments?
2: I do have hope. And it's probably because we do see all the stuff that's going on on the ground. My stories about Columbus, right. Like that, the NDI
0: listserv. I mean, honestly, it, it's it, the yeah. way people just dove in, and we had so you had so much more interaction, and and, yeah. and 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 a lot of those programs are still being designed. I think there's a. I agree. I think that's a good way. Oh, to.
3: I, I, I think you have to do like like for us, do what you can do, fight the fights you can win.
1: That's right.
3: So you know, and 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 enjoy the success where you can, because this CARES Act thing you speak of, what is it? <laughs>
1: And and I think just empowering those local solutions is really the deal, right? That's where the action's gonna be. And that's where I have hope. That's the only place I feel really hopeful at this point. I do think the pandemic has elevated this conversation to a point that it has changed it. And I'm appreciative of the fact that we now can have this conversation and everybody can agree that our children need access if they're sent home from school, right? Uh, That has been helpful locally. Uh, and I'm sure it's been helpful across the country to, to spur people to action, but I don't see much happening at the state and federal level.
0: Thank you, Deb. Thank you, Angela. Travis, you're okay, per usual. <laughs> <laughs> Thank I, you, Chris. I, I really appreciate uh, this. I, you know, frankly, I, I've, I, I like that since Travis and I can't go out to get our, our wings right now, um, at least we have a chance to talk to different folks and and, um, and other people can give him ideas rather than him being stuck with just the ones I throw at him. So um, I really Thank appreciate you. the three of you coming on because I think this is a good call. And I, I hope that a lot of people are going to check it out.
2: It's a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks.